You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks, and hello from 2022. I luckily took a cheeky peek at the schedule before I traveled for the holidays, and realized that this episode is actually supposed to come out today, aka January 1st, and the flight back to the place where I keep all the things to make the podcast is on the night of the day I need to record this podcast, and I don't feel like traveling with all the stuff, so this is being recorded smack dab in the middle of December, about eight days after I recorded the last episode. So, So after this, I guess I get my two weeks off. Also, Happy New Year. We did it, hopefully, and this is not being broadcast from the apocalypse. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Whale. I have been wary of Darren Aronofsky since Mother came out, however many years ago that was. You know, the one with Jennifer Lawrence and she's supposed to be like Mother Earth or some shit and then people eat her baby. Yeah, that one. I have not quite recovered from that movie, so I was a little apprehensive seeing The Whale based on that, and not so much the musings I'd been hearing about this film from, you know, the the very, very PC periodicals. You guys, don't let the reviews stating that The Whale is fatphobic turn you off from this film. It's not, by the way. The film shows the final days of a tragic, self-destructive addict searching for meaning in his life, whose drug of choice just so happens to be binging food. If the only thing you took away from this film after watching it is that it's fatphobic, you've completely missed what this film is about. If Charlie Brendan Fraser's character had been skinny as a rail and doing heroin with the ferocity with which we see the food addiction in this film and everything else in the movie was exactly the same, no one would be batting an eye or claiming it was drugs phobic or whatever. They'd be losing their minds over its raw honesty and depiction of drug abuse or some other shit. End of rant. And also you guys, Brendan Fraser is absolutely transcendent in this, and I hope he wins all the awards. He's already had my heart since 1999, and I'm so glad he's back making good movies. The last 10 minutes of this particular one were so heartbreakingly intense, featuring probably the best acted scene of his entire career, and it is the first time I've ever gone to a movie theater, and when the credits began to roll and I turned up to leave, the people that were still seated behind me were crying, also the people in front of me were crying, and me, I was crying as well. And I well up from time to time in movies, but I don't think I have ever just fully bawled my eyes out the way I did in this movie. Also, Sadie Sink, better known as probably the ginger girl from Stranger Things, is a banger in this movie too. But yeah, this one was raw, emotional, honest, and beautiful, and I cannot wait to see it again. Anyway, on to this week's shenanigans. This month, we're covering four of the biggest actors to ever grace the silver screen. Some were funny, some were dramatic, but all left an indelible mark on the business we call show. 
This week, an actor who is probably lesser known than those we're covering later in the month, but who made more films than most of them put together. An actor whose antics made him an early pioneer of film, an influence to his counterparts, and his gangly body hanging from a clock face would become one of the most iconic images in all of cinema, and most people don't even know his name. I, of course, am talking about the comedic genius, Harold Lloyd. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Clayton Lloyd entered the world on April 20th, 1893 in a humble abode in Burchard, Nebraska, the son of an entrepreneur and a mother with a passion for theater that she'd pass on to her son. Harold would later refer to his childhood as Tom Sawyer-esque, and the family often lived quite frugally due to his father's string of failed businesses. This forced the family to be quite nomadic in nature, a situation that Harold's mother absolutely detested. The constant moves forced Harold and his brother Gaylord to be more or less self-educated. These experiences would influence Harold's later films, as much of his life eventually would as well. In 1910, after his father had one failed business too many, Harold's parents divorced and his father moved with his youngest son to San Diego, California, where Lloyd began training as a dramatic actor and working for a repertory company, having started this path at the age of 12. He would experiment with makeup to disguise his young age. This guy is babyface with a capital B. Other hobbies of his from this time included boxing and magic tricks. I mean, just the markings of a little showman. Harold would begin his motion picture career for Thomas Edison's production company, who had taken a little trip to San Diego to shoot some films. In this first one, he appeared as an indigenous person in the background of 1913's The Old Monk's Tale. Soon after, Harold's father ran out of money again, they relocated to Los Angeles and soon became destitute. Harold would keep he and his father housed by continuing to do extra work in films. By this point, Harold had become quite the little makeup artist and would stand outside the studios hoping to get hired, clutching a portfolio of images showcasing him in every character type imaginable. So when the casting people would go out on a particular day looking for a certain type, Harold could show them an image of him that would fit the bill. While pretty ingenious for the time, this method had little success for the young actor. He even tried to break into Universal Pictures once, but was immediately busted. Around this time, Harold had made friends with Hal Roach, a fellow working extra who had just started his own studio that year, thanks to him coming into an inheritance, and Harold was the first man Roach wanted on his roster. He was the hardest working man Roach had ever met. Together, they would learn how to make movies wherever they could, and even managed to sell a few to bigger studios. Eventually, the duo managed to secure a studio space, which was the rundown Bradbury Mansion in downtown Los Angeles. Don't go looking for this once gorgeous feat of architecture, though. The building was torn down in 1929, and the Los Angeles Superior Court now occupies that land. When Harold, who was making $5 a week at this time, asked to have his salary matched to his dramatic counterpart at the company who was earning 10, Roach told him this was impossible and that the only reason the dramatic actor was getting paid twice as much was because he wouldn't work for less than that. So Harold quit and soon found himself working for Max Sennett, aka the King of Comedy, as one of the Keystone Cops. 
Not long after this, Roach lured him back for $50 a week, of course. While some of his colleagues at the bigger studio thought that this was a bad idea to go back to Hal Roach, Harold decided he'd rather be the big deal at the little studio than the little deal at the big studio. Max Sennett had been the guy who discovered most of the era's biggest names in comedy, which made it difficult for Harold, who had actually always wanted to lean more dramatic in his roles than comedy. But if he wanted that, he was not going to stick out at Keystone at all. Roach and Harold ultimately created the character Lonesome Luke, a comic character inspired by Charlie Chaplin's Tramp. Luke had tight clothes instead of the Tramp who had loose ones, and Luke had a larger Chaplin-esque mustache, and Harold gave the character a greater energy and enthusiasm than what the Tramp had had. These antics won a popular following, and his one-reel 10-minute comedies were soon expanded to two-reel 20-minute comedies. Hal Roach hired 15-year-old B.B. Daniels to star alongside Lloyd in 1914, and Lloyd and Daniels would eventually become romantically involved, so the legend goes. The two were soon known as the boy and the girl in their films, until B.B. would leave in an attempt to become a bigger star. Lonesome Luke became a sensation, despite the character's lack of polish compared to the likes of Chaplin's Tramp. Lonesome Luke is considered a grotesque character, which was a type of comedy that was quite popular around this time and was characterized by its rejection of naturalistic movements and behaviors. By late 1917, Harold had tired of Lonesome Luke and wanted to develop his screen presence beyond the Chaplin knockoff. He conceived an entirely new character, though Roach would claim that the character change had been his idea. The character was honestly not that different from Luke, just in glasses and sans mustache, but slowly Harold's comedic style, one of high fast-paced action, would become more refined. Harold left Roach again in 1919 until Roach paid him more money once more, and once again Harold's on-screen persona went through a little reboot. This version of Harold Lloyd was that of an everyday young man in street clothes who faced comic situations with his resourcefulness. He kept his soon-to-be iconic pair of lensless, horn-rimmed glasses. After B.B. had left the Roach roster, Harold, who by this time had his own unit at Roach's company, which had continued to expand, hired Mildred Davis in 1919. She and Harold would fall in love and marry in 1923. Then something happened that completely upended the life of Harold Lloyd. While shooting publicity photos for his film Haunted Spooks in August of 1919, Harold was grievously injured after a bomb went off in his hand two weeks into production. Yes, you heard that right. A bomb went off in his hand. Somehow, an actual bomb had made its way onto the prop table, and Harold, ever the comedian, thought it would be funny to light what he thought was a fake wick for the publicity shots. Well, the bomb went off, blowing off Harold's right thumb and index finger in the process, while also gravely injuring the photographer and prop master. Harold was badly burned, temporarily blinded, and the resulting injuries took the actor four months to recover from. Harold lost the two fingers on his right hand, and for the rest of his career, he would wear a glove with prosthetic fingers to hide the injury. For most of his film career, most people didn't tend to notice as the glove was actually remarkably well made. The index finger of the glove was sewn to the middle one, and a foam finger was inserted to give dimension to it. When the middle finger moved... So did the foam one. Unless you're looking for it real hard in those old grainy films, it's pretty hard to spot even when you zoom in. 
Eight years after the accident, Harold would be invited to put his hand and shoe prints into the cement of the famous Grauman's Chinese Theater. He wore the glove for this ceremony, but you can tell there's a little discrepancy looking at the two handprints, as his index finger and thumb on his right hand are far fainter than the others. As Harold continued to grow in popularity, in 1920, it appeared that the man who'd started his career as a knockoff chaplain was going to become the more popular comedian. Harold was just putting out far more films than Chaplin, who was notorious for taking two to three times longer than his counterparts to make a movie, and Harold's films were comparable to Chaplin's despite quote-unquote less time being put into them. In part, Harold had what was then known as the preview to thank for this. Now it's more commonly known as the test screening, in which the filmmakers have an opportunity to get real audience reactions before a film is released. Getting an audience's reaction to a film would give Harold more or less an idea of how it was going to be received at large. In fact, Harold's first feature-length comedy, though it had not been intentionally made as one, came out of this process. A sailor-made man from 1921 had been four reels in the preview with the intention to whittle it down to three or even two, but audiences loved it so much, they kept it at four. Harold's next feature, Grandma's Boy from 1921, would change the feature comedy film forever. Shot over a period of six months, the film had originally been a bit more character-based over comedy. But after a bad preview, Harold and director Fred Neumeyer went back and added several comedic sequences to the film, essentially balancing out the ha-has and the hearts. The film became a massive success, was loved by moviegoers, critics, and its colleagues alike, with one newspaper referring to it as the, quote, perfect comedy. One thing Harold had been trying to do for years came to a head in 1923 with arguably his most famous film, Safety Last, which starts with a country boy going to the big city and ends with him climbing a building for a stunt. This is a popular thing at the time, people climbing buildings, and the individuals doing this were known as human flies. You see, Harold had always wanted to scare his audiences, not like horror movie scared, but like going on a roller coaster scared. Luckily for him, Roach had discovered a place in Los Angeles that if you angled the camera a certain way over the Hill Street Tunnel, it gave the illusion that you were much higher in the air than you actually were. This part of LA is actually quite hilly, hence the name, I suppose. And soon Harold, Roach, and company would build several facades or false fronts of the outsides of buildings in the spot for several features, allowing it to look like the actors were in precarious situations on tall buildings, when in reality they were at most maybe five or six feet from the ground. Throw in some actors acting like they're in mortal peril and well-angled reaction shots from a crowd on a ground shot somewhere else, and you've got yourself the illusion of a tall building. But after perfecting this method, the sets for safety last were ultimately built on the edge of an actually tall building. Harold and company pulled out all the stops as his character climbed the building. A pigeon landed on his head. A mouse crawls up his pant leg. Some dogs bark at him viciously from a window. A flagpole breaks and almost causes him to fall to his death. And of course, the clock which pops out from its frame, whose hands Harold desperately clings to towards the end of the film. Harold had to wear tightrope shoes in the film to achieve a lot of this stuff. I was actually left there in between takes, hanging on the face of the clock when they were shooting that part. Keep in mind, this dude's only got eight working fingers. Harold's wish to scare audiences came true when Safety Last came out. There were reports of audience members who would faint in the theaters, requiring some to keep a nurse on duty during showings. For his hard work, Harold was given the title The King of Daredevil Comedy. 
The film would also mark the last time he and Mildred would work together before they got married. Mildred would only have three films come out after this one, and only one after marrying Harold. 1923 was a hella busy year for this dude. Harold made his last film for Hal Roach that year, which was called Why Worry, and it was about a clueless American tourist in Mexico during the revolution. The split was an amicable one. Roach had just become more focused on projects like the very popular series Our Gang, and Harold wanted to break out on his own, so the two parted on mutual terms in 1924. Harold's first film as an independent producer was 1924's Girl Shy, in which he plays a man with a stutter trying to stop a girl from marrying the wrong man. If you're wondering how they made it look like he had a stutter in a silent film, he just like blah, 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 his lips a lot. The usage of horses within this film would heavily influence the first major production of Ben-Hur, which came out the following year. The film also loosely inspired the chapel scene at the end of the 1967 film The Graduate. The following year, Harold would star in the most successful film of his career, which was called The Freshman. The 32-year-old played a member of a college football team who was desperate to prove himself and be considered a hero. The end of this film would, 22 years later, serve as the beginning of his last, and the actor could still more or less pull off the look of a 20-something. In fact, according to all who knew him, throughout his life, Harold Lloyd never lost his youthful vigor. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Another thing that made Harold a rarity in Hollywood was his seemingly seamless ability to balance his career and his family life. Mildred and Harold welcomed their first child in 1924, and unlike just about any movie star parent you've heard of from the last few, just always basically, Harold was a constant, stable presence in his children's lives, a fact many others in town were reportedly jealous of. Speaking of family, like many other studios, Harold made his new independent studio a family affair. His brother, who he had acted alongside for years as, I believe, a stand-in and stunt double also, continued acting alongside his brother. His father was the VP of Harold Lloyd Productions, and soon after, his uncle joined as controller of finance. Everybody's getting uppity about these Nepo babies now. This town was built on nepotism, my dudes. As the money poured in, the production value of Harold's films increased as well. Much of the gags were improvised, concocted by individuals known as gagmen, in addition to Harold himself. In a world before writer's rooms, the places these ideas were dreamed up were known as gag rooms. But the ability to shoot by the seat of your pants was about to become more or less a thing of the past. Harold was spending a shitload of money towards the end of the decade, both on pictures as well as the construction of a palatial mansion in Beverly Hills. Harold had been notoriously competitive his whole life, with his eldest daughter even stating in an interview that people hated playing games of any kind with him because he was not the most gracious of losers. Harold was about to face a challenge that many actors of the silent era would fail, the transition to talkies. 1928 saw 11 Harold Lloyd pictures, including Speedy, which was financed in part by Paramount Pictures. The film would be Lloyd's last silent film and may have also been the first film in which the action of somebody getting flipped off is depicted. But it wasn't technically the last silent film Harold Lloyd shot. That was welcome danger, but he soon realized he was not going to be able to fight off the rise of the talkie, especially after happening upon a theater playing a synced sound newsreel that the audience was going nuts for. So instead of, you know, risking losing a lot of money releasing a silent film when people didn't want silent films, he reshot the entire thing with sound. This would be the first time audiences would hear the famous comedian's voice, which drummed up a lot of excitement. 
He also wisely cast theater-trained performers, aka actors who could talk and gesture, to have dialogue scenes with. This was not a cheap change, as it not only required more time, money, and equipment to do this, but he also had to hire joke writers. Despite confidence to the contrary, the previews for this film were disastrous for Harold, and the film kept breaking in the projector, too. When it finally released, Welcome Danger ended up being a critical failure, but a financial success, as many flocked to the theater because they wanted to hear what Harold Lloyd sounded like. This novelty was not a lasting one, and his next film, Feet First from 1930, released right at the beginning of the Depression, was essentially a remake of Safety Last. But audiences had already seen Safety Last, making Feet First Harold Lloyd's first cinematic flop. He wouldn't make another film for two years. For that next film, Harold was determined to hack the talkie and to make everything perfect. 1932's Movie Crazy was written by a prominent playwright, as Harold believed if the talkies were here to stay, then the script needed to be top tier. The time off seemed to be fruitful, as Harold seemed to find a marriage between the silent world he knew and the talkie world that had been thrust upon him. While that's the consensus today, at the time, the film did even worse financially than Feet First. Depression-era audiences just couldn't seem to get behind this relic from the silent era. Harold's career decline had begun. Harold continued the practice of releasing one film every two years, which did not help his popularity with audiences. It was very much an out-of-sight, out-of-mind situation back then. His next film, 1934's The Cat's Paw, was a dark political thriller, Harold's biggest departure from his format to date. Remember, he'd always wanted to be a dramatic actor, but that never really happened for him. The critics did love this film, but again, box office success eluded this film. 1936's film was The Milky Way, his only attempt at a screwball comedy. The same fate. Around this time, Harold's financial problems began to escalate as well. Harold sold the land on which his studio was located in 1937 to the Mormon Church. For those of you familiar with the area, it is still owned by the Mormons. It's the big modernist temple on Santa Monica Boulevard in Westwood. So, it looked like Harold Lloyd was going to be spending more time at home. There, he threw himself into his hobbies, which at this time included microscopy, color theory, abstract painting, photography, for which he even won several awards and photographed Marilyn Monroe, and early experiments with Technicolor were also shot at his home. He also threw himself into charity work. He liked working with um, hospitals that specialized in like severely injured people for obvious reasons, and was a very active member of the Freemasons, of which he joined in 1925. By the end of the 1930s, Harold was a cog in the machine for his last film of the decade, Professor Beware, which he made as an employee of Paramount instead of as a subcontractor. After that, Harold's films became farther and fewer between. He made a film in 1941 for Archaea with Lucille Ball called A Girl, A Guy, and a Gob, after which he was absent from the screen for six additional years. His final film would be The Sin of Harold Diddlebach from 1947, which was an homage to Harold's career and was the film that I mentioned earlier that featured Harold reprising his part from The Freshman. This time, we deal with the character as an adult man living through the Depression. The film had been directed by Preston Sturgis, who was a huge fan of Harold's, and and financed by the, at the time, independent producer Howard Hughes. Harold and Sturgis had very different ideas as to how the film should be. Sturgis reportedly spent months on the first third of the script and just a week on the middle and end, which worried Harold, and therefore the two fought frequently throughout the shooting. The finished product was released only briefly in 1947, then shelved by Hughes. 
Hughes later issued a recut version of the film in 1951 through RKO when he gained control of the studio, and he renamed it Mad Wednesday. Harold hated the recut so much, he also had not been informed that it was happening, that he sued not only Hughes, but California Pictures, Sturgis and Hughes Production Company, and RKO as well for damages to his reputation, quote, as an outstanding motion picture star and personality. Harold would receive a $30,000 settlement. Between his penultimate and final film, Harold had forayed into radio, one notable gig being as the director and host of the Old Gold Comedy Theater, which did 30-minute adaptations of recent popular comedy films but on the radio. In 1943, a fire at the Lloyd Estate damaged many of the negatives of Harold's silent film comedies, a loss he valued at $2 million. Harold had rushed to the film vault upon hearing the explosion and had to be rescued by his wife, who caught him as he collapsed in the doorway to the vault. Seven firefighters and the estate's head gardener were hospitalized after being exposed to fumes from the burning of the nitrate films and the chlorine gas from the pool's water treatment. Due to his other financial woes, from this point on, the home slowly fell into a state of disrepair. In a world before the internet, and therefore easy access to all of the films that came before and after, if films from the early days weren't played in theaters or later on television, there wasn't really a way for younger people to see them. Therefore, you couldn't get acquainted with the stars of yesteryear. This is in part why so many of the stars from this era faded into obscurity, and Harold Lloyd was no exception. He had maintained the copyrights to most, if not all, of his films, and was very particular about how they were screened. For example, The Silent Ones had to be accompanied by an organist, not a pianist. Despite being an accomplished pianist himself, Harold did not think the sound belonged as the sole accompaniment of a film. Harold Lloyd films were never shown on TV during Harold's lifetime because his asking price of $300,000 per picture was deemed too high. While he believed this was protecting his artistic integrity, another effect occurred as a result. People forgot about him. Once upon a time, he'd been more prolific than Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton probably combined, but those two's willingness to exhibit their films wherever made them more cemented icons of cinema while Harold faded into relative obscurity. As his stance on all this relaxes the ears stamped on just a little bit, Harold then worried that people would not feel attached to films 40 years removed from their heyday if he showed them. Turned out there was little worry for that, because, as everyone soon discovered, to see a Harold Lloyd film is to get a glimpse into the future of what cinema would become. Harold would release two compilation films showcasing his work, 1960's Harold Lloyd's World of Comedy and The Funny Side of Life, the former of which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. This action fixed a lot of his lost popularity, and the renewed interest in Harold helped restore his status among film historians. Throughout his later years, he screened his films for audiences at special charity and educational events to great acclaim, and found a particular receptive audience amongst college students, which Harold was very pleased about. He'd always been a big fan of new ideas and therefore the youths. Mildred passed away from a heart attack in 1969. And Harold Lloyd followed two years later on March 8, 1971, from complications from prostate cancer. 
After Harold's death, his estate sold distribution rights to many of his films to Time Life in 1974. One of his granddaughters released a book of Harold's more risque photographs in 2004. It had been Harold's wish that his lavish home become, upon his death, a museum for motion pictures. The attempt to do this failed in 1975, and the estate was sold at auction in 1979 to a businessman who subsidized the lot and sold it as 15 smaller ones. But shockingly, the mansion Harold Lloyd had built to serve as a beacon of his success stands to this day, though with several modern comforts and remodels. The home is considered a California historical monument, so it's likely going to remain standing for the time being. Harold Lloyd, while one of the less-remembered members of Hollywood's silent age, was a pioneer on which the likes of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin would stand upon. Thanks to Harold Lloyd's more or less careful storage of his films, we can, to this day, enjoy a lot more of his films compared to others. Those films featuring that wiry, baby-faced daredevil and his comedic escapades. And that underdog Harold Lloyd will never be forgotten again. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to po- get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got that buy me a coffee where you just buy me a coffee. I'm drinking wine right now because I'm getting on a flight in about two hours. So this will be edited very lazily over the course of two weeks. And everybody yelled all outside my apartment all afternoon. So this is going to be fun. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week for you, but three weeks from now for me, I may sound a little bit different as I'm planning on getting some new equipment to start the year. But of course, I haven't done that yet since this is being recorded in the middle of December. But next week, if it does sound different, great. If it doesn't, that means I procrastinated. But next week, we'll be covering the life and career of the Latin lover, Rudolph Valentino. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.